If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Calling all History Extra podcast listeners. We want to hear from you. We're currently conducting some research about our podcast, so please enter our survey for your chance to win a £100 Waterstones gift card. It shouldn't take any longer than 10 minutes, and as a thank you for taking part, UK residents who complete the survey will be given the opportunity to enter our prize draw for the chance to win one of two £100 e-gift cards to spend at Waterstones. The survey will be available to complete until 11.59pm on Sunday the 4th of October 2020. You can find the link in our episode description. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today we've got an interview with Sudhir Hazari Singh, who's an expert on French politics and history at the University of Oxford. He's recently published a major new biography of the 18th century Haitian revolutionary Toussaint Louverture, which has already garnered a great deal of critical acclaim. Sudhir was joined in conversation by our editor, Rob Attar. So um, first of all, why do you think this is a good time to be telling the story of Toussaint Louverture? Well, I think, um, first of all, um, this is a moment when uh, people are talking a lot about uh, the history of colonialism. And uh, Toussaint Louverture is one of the leading figures in the um, perhaps the first wave of anti-colonial struggles um, uh, in the Atlantic world. And I would say that he's, he was probably the most famous figure in that um, anti-colonial struggle. So that's one important reason why I think it's, uh, uh, it's very valuable to be talking about him now, especially as the issue of how, how we think about colonial memory is becoming increasingly important in our collective life. Um, and the second reason, of course, is that we're talking about race. Um, at the moment, um, around Black Lives Matter, around the issue of how we commemorate or or talk about uh, the impact of slavery. And these were issues that were not abstract issues for Toussaint Louverture. He was born a slave, and he devoted his entire adult life to, um, first of all, um, helping eliminate the scourge of slavery from what was then the French colony of Saint-Domingue. And then towards the end of his life, actually uh, 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 promulgating a constitution which 
abolished slavery and then devoting the last two years of his life to fighting off a French attempt to re-enslave his own people. So um, he's someone who who has thought long and hard uh, about the issues of race, about the issues of slavery, about the issues of colonialism. And these are all issues that we're still grappling with today. And you mentioned earlier about the fact that he his early life was spent in slavery. How much do we know about Toussaint's existence prior to the revolution? And have you been able to dis- discover anything new from your research? Well, that was slightly frustrating because um, we have a kind of wealth of documentation about Toussaint Louverture from the mid-1790s up to his death, because that was the period when he was a French uh, uh, military and uh, uh, civilian administrator. So uh, we have a lot of his uh, reports, a lot of his uh, records, his his reports, um, and his letters. Uh, a A large number of his letters have survived. I mean, just a tiny fraction of the total number, but still quite a large number. Unfortunately, before 1791, there are only literally a handful of documents um, that have survived. Um, and I wasn't able to find anything new. And, and one, of the, one of the complicated things about uh, writing about someone uh, about whom there are no documents is, of course, this, these are, the, these are the, the moments in his life which are perhaps the, uh, uh, the ones that are most open to controversy. Um, but there are some basic facts that we still don't know. We don't know exactly uh, which year he was born in, for example. We don't know exactly which year he was freed from slavery, because he, unlike the vast majority of his uh, brothers and sisters in Saint-Domingue, was emancipated from slavery before the 1790s. Uh, we think it was around the year 1775, and I spent some time in one of the opening chapters of the book discussing this, um, but but we don't have the documents. Um, and so th- there are these large gaps. Uh, we don't know exactly uh, when he learned to read and write or who taught him for that matter, because of course, as a slave, he would not have gone to school. Uh, again, these are all things that, uh, that, we, that, that I have to speculate to some extent. And of course, the most, um, the most interesting question for me as a kind of on the political side is where did he get his political um, and um, uh, uh, ideological uh, uh, ideas from? And, uh, and of course, there's nothing written down. And, 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 and when he became a great revolutionary leader, he told the story in a particular kind of way. Uh, I don't mean to say by that that he, he, he was necessarily distorting what happened, but he wanted to tell it in such a way that um, made, made his later trajectory clear. Whereas I think um, one of the things I argue in, in, in the early chapters of the biography is that w- what he was exposed to in the early decades of his life was actually a range of intellectual, uh, religious, and cultural influences. He wasn't just a son of the Enlightenment, although he was that. He was also someone who was exposed to um, African um, political and cultural ideas, and also um, spirit, spiritual and religious ideas from the Caribbean. So it's this, it's this melange, it's this um, uh, uh, mixture of different elements that I think uh, shaped him uh, in, his early, in his early youth and in the decades prior to the revolution. 
But, but even though we don't necessarily know a huge amount about his early life, do we have a general sense of what it would have been like to have been enslaved in this French colony at this time? Yes, uh, on that we have a lot of documentation because Saint-Domingue was known as um, uh, the Pearl of the Antilles. Uh, it was, um, it was uh, a, a colony in which um, it was the world's largest production uh, producer sorry, uh, of sugar and coffee and also um, uh, a colony that produced uh, large quantities of cotton, cocoa, uh, and indigo. And Toussaint uh, was born and brought up on uh, a plantation in the northern uh, plain of Saint-Domingue, which was the richest uh, part of the colony and the most fertile. And life on those plantations has been quite amply documented. And so we, we, we would have a, some sense of what it would have been like to grow up. Even, even in that respect, what is interesting about Toussaint is that he very quickly, because he was such an exceptional figure, he immediately came to the attention of, um, of the, uh, the owners and the managers of the slave plantation. And um, at a comparatively young age, he's recruited by the plantation manager to become his, in effect, his assistant and his deputy. Um, and uh, very quickly he becomes, uh, his official title on the plantation was that of coachman. But that doesn't just mean uh, he, he drove the, the plantation manager around. We, we have indirect evidence that suggests that he was basically uh, helping run the plantation uh, uh, with the plantation manager. And so he had quite a lot of power and authority, certainly by the 1770s and 1780s. So in, in the two decades prior to the uh, uh, revolution, um, Toussaint had already become uh, an important figure in the plantation system, uh, 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 even though he wasn't actually a, a, a fully-fledged revolutionary yet. So is it fair to say that his experience of slavery may not have been as unpleasant as it would have been for the majority? I think it would have, I, well, I think it was certainly different in a number of crucial respects. Um, I mean, we, we do have quite extensive um, statistics about life expectancy um, on the plantation that Toussaint uh, lived um, until the 1790s. And at the worst, in the worst decades, um, you had, uh, there was a kind of 30% uh, death rate so one person in every three that Toussaint would have known as a child and as a young man growing up didn't even make it into adulthood, right? So those were the sort of odds that, that you faced, particularly if you were a field slave. Um, but Toussaint was never, at least to our knowledge, a field slave. He was always someone who was relatively lived, and of course one has to, be, one has to say relatively, but someone who lived in, um, uh, uh, in or close to uh, the, the plantation house, the plantation management. And in that sense, uh, uh, his experience would not have been as, as brutal. Um, and the other thing that we do know about the, the, the estate that he, was, that he grew up in was known as the Breda Plantation. And from what we know of the records, which have survived and which I, which I looked at in the French colonial archives, the treatment of slaves in the Breda plantation was not uh, 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 as uh, 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 terrifying and as inhumane as, as it was in other plantations. Now, I hasten to say that, of course, 
they were still slaves and they were still treated as the property of the, the managers and the owners. But when you read about some of the uh, uh, unbelievable uh, 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 things that were done to, to slaves still in the second half of the 18th century, just kind of barbaric forms of abuse, torture, humiliation, um, it's, it's not... It's not obvious that those sorts of things were happening on the Breda plantation. So in those respects, um, Toussaint's uh, experience of slavery um, would have been different from, let's say, the average. On the other hand, even, even members of his own family, even members of his immediate family, um, uh, were treated in, in, in terrible ways. We know that. We know, for example, that one of his half-sisters was sold off... Um, sold off uh, 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 into slavery at a very young age, and um, Toussaint doesn't see her again. She's, she's married off to, uh, to a white planter, and this was something that was quite common um, uh, in those times. Uh, and Toussaint never doesn't see her again for another um, 30 years. Now, those sorts of things um, also marked him uh, a great deal. So there is a bit of a discussion about the extent to which Toussaint's experience as a slave was typical. But I think um, he was very much part of uh, a structure which uh, oppressed uh, the slaves. And uh, he was one of the oppressed. I don't think there's any doubt about, about that. And am I right to say that prior to the revolution and after he had been emancipated, that he himself briefly was a slave owner? And should that in any way affect our judgment of him? One of the few documents that, that have survived, indeed, from the, uh, I think it's the uh, early, it's either the late, 1780, the late 1770s or the early 1780s, is exactly uh, a kind of title deed which shows that for a relatively brief period of time, Toussaint Louverture um, uh, owned or at least um, managed um, about a dozen slaves. Uh, it's also come to light recently, uh, or, or at least um, a possible fact has come to light, that one of them may have been um, someone called Jean-Jacques Dessalines, who actually went on to become one of the great generals of the, uh, the Saint-Domingue Revolution. And after Toussaint died, he becomes uh, one of the leaders of the new Haitian Republic. So, um, uh, and Toussaint always had a, a rather complicated relationship with Dessalines, and of course, this would have would would certainly have added to the complexity of their relationship if if it turned out to be true that Toussaint had, for a brief moment, um, owned him as a slave. Um, I think I don't know that it should necessarily um, change our view of of Toussaint himself, because I think. Um, uh, he was, as I say, part of a structure uh, uh, in pre-revolutionary Saint-Domingue where slavery was um, not just the norm, but it was the only form of, um, uh, it was the only mode of production, the only form of social relations um, that were imaginable, right? And so um, if you wanted, if, if he, Toussaint, wanted to uh, move forward, um, uh, uh, this was the only way in which he could advance his own interests. Um, I guess 
the question that one should ask at that point is how did how would he how did he treat his slaves? Um, um, did he help uh, provide them with um, uh, 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 facilities and material goods in a way that other slave owners didn't? But we don't have um, the precise answers to that. Um, and I th- and I would add one other thing, which is that um, by the time of the revolution, um, and when Toussaint becomes a leading figure in the in the in the revolution in the 1790s, there is no evidence that um, his slave ownership is something that is held against him by his his loyal and devoted followers. So, um, in, and and Saint Domingue is a small community. Uh, you know, by word of mouth, I'm sure it would have been known that uh, what Toussaint's past had been before the revolution. But there's no evidence, as I say that this was something that was held against him by by his own supporters. And so then coming on to the revolution, at what point does he become one of the leaders and why does he come to prominence there? So um, the early years of the revolution are complicated because uh, initially uh, the the slave uh, uh, revolt, which comes in 1791, um, starts in the north of the colony. Uh, and it's directed at uh, the French Revolution, what are then the French uh, revolutionary authorities. And and it's really in the form of a demand for equal rights for um, uh, the black black population. There isn't even a demand early on for the abolition of slavery. It's simply for more humane treatment um, of the slaves. But the French Revolution is not really interested in thinking about um, uh, the, the fate of the slaves, except in, in very general uh, 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 and, and kind of vague terms. And early on, they're not even interested in giving equal rights to the um, mixed-race population. Right? There's about 30,000 mixed-race uh, uh, men, and, men and women in, in, uh, uh, in the colony of Saint-Domingue, and about half a million. Uh, black uh, 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 men and women, but initially, at least, the uh, uh, the, re- the French revolutionaries side completely with the planters, and the planters are, of course, terrified about aboli- about the, the abolition of slavery. And in the early years of the revolution, um, the main the main movement is on the part of the. The, the ex-slaves who, who push increasingly uh, uh, in, and, and, and radicalize their demands and demand uh, that slavery is abolished. And Toussaint eventually um, supports that and becomes uh, uh, one of the kind of representatives of that view, as it were. The French, the French revolutionaries eventually agree to that. And in 1793, um, the French revolutionary representatives in Saint-Domingue abolished slavery. Um, uh, but at that time, Toussaint Louverture is not yet uh, with the French. And, and the main reason for that is that he doesn't feel he can trust the French because they, for at least uh, a year and a half or two years, had said that they, had not, they were not interested in, abo- in abolishing slavery. The only reason the French agreed to, to abolishing slavery is that um, they were um, pushed into that position by the slave revolution. It's the revolution that made the French abolish slavery, not some kind of uh, magnanimous humanitarian gesture on their part. So, and, and eventually, uh, 
Toussaint, who had who had allied himself with the with the with the Spanish uh, uh, forces who were present on the island as well. Eventually, in 1794, Toussaint sees that the French are genuine in uh, uh, their desire to not just abolish slavery but create a new political order. And, and in 1794, Toussaint. Uh, switches allegiance from the Spanish side to the French and becomes and begins his career as a French revolutionary uh, and uh, re- revolutionary leader. So does Toussaint always see himself as French rather than Haitian? Well, I think he sees himself as both. Um, uh, and in fact, uh, if one were to ask the question, what are the kind of different components of his... Of his uh, of his worldview, as it were. He's someone who sees himself as um, a citizen of the French Republic. And certainly all the writings that we have of his um, show that he is absolutely dedicated to uh, Republican ideas and particularly the ideas of equality and fraternity. Fraternity, brotherhood, is something that he talks about a lot uh, 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 in, in, the, in the 1790s. And in that sense, that language of, of the French revolutionaries is one that he adopts very comprehensively. So in, in that sense, he's, a, he's not just a son of the French Revolution, he's also a son of the Enlightenment. But he's also someone who um, is a very devout Catholic, um, his Catholicism means a lot to him, and that's obviously not something that is very, very much compatible with um, the French Revolution as it's unfolding um, in, on mainland France at the time. Um, he also has in him, and this is something that I talk about in, in, in one of the early chapters as well, th- there's also a very close, uh, almost kind of symbiotic relationship that he has with nature. He talks a lot about the, the spiritual power of nature. And that, to me, is something that he gets from the fact that he's a, he's a, he's a son of the Caribbean. Um, he has this almost, it's almost a kind of a cosmology, um, right? An idea of what uh, uh, the, the natural order should be. And that's based on his very extensive um, interactions with, uh, with the land, with the soil. Um, he's someone who, when he was a slave, uh, spent actually a large number of years uh, as a shepherd. So he has that very close, uh, 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 solitary uh, 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 set of interactions with, with nature. Um, and the other thing that is very striking about him, uh, and I talk about this in the book as well, is that he is undoubtedly imbued with um, the natural religion of the Caribbean, which is Vodou. And although he doesn't actually um, talk about it uh, publicly and, and explicitly, you can see very clearly from the way that he uses certain expressions um, uh, uh, from the way in which he uh, uh, talks to his own supporters, you know, the, the, the transcripts of some of his own speeches, where you can see that he's in fact using two different types of language. Um, some, uh, on the one hand, the language of the French Revolution, and on the other hand, the language of what you might call Caribbean spirituality. And just to give one example of that, which actually perfectly summarizes this, is um, the name Louverture which Toussaint chooses in uh, 1793, just at the moment when slavery is being abolished and um, 
the the political and civil rights of the of the slaves and the black population uh, are being uh, championed by him. Uh, Louverture, of course, is on the one hand a nod to the Enlightenment, to the idea of opening one's mind, broadening one's horizons. It's a very Enlightenment-type uh, name. Um, and if someone were to choose it, he's obviously signaling to the French revolutionary authorities that he's a son and a disciple of the Enlightenment. However, when you study um, the emerging uh, uh, religion of Vodou um, in Saint-Domingue in the late 18th century, uh, what, you, what you find out is that um, there are a lot of uh, 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 spirits uh, who are celebrated uh, through the Vodou religion. And one of them is known as Legba, L-E-G-B-A, Papa Legba. And Legba is the spirit of the crossroads. Um, his role is to help people um, get through um, crossroads and move into uh, a, a, a new phase in their life or a new moment in their, in their life. And so in choosing this name, Louverture, Toussaint is also nodding to Papa Legba. And so when his own supporters were here, would, would, would have heard his name, they would not necessarily have uh, connected it with um, Enlightenment ideology. They would have thought, oh, yes, he is someone who um, uh, uh, is fully versed in uh, uh, Caribbean uh, uh, spirituality. And, and there are lots of examples of that, um, of, of the way Toussaint manages to maintain, if you like, a foot in both camps um, throughout his leadership. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. You know, projecting much, much further uh, forward in time, the person that he reminds me of uh, a great deal is Nelson Mandela. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. And what do you think made him such a successful revolutionary leader? Um, I think, uh, for one thing, uh, it's that he was like like a lot of the um, revolutionary, charismatic revolutionary figures uh, of the period. He was a warrior, and I think. Uh, most of the great figures that we uh, see emerging at this time, uh, you know, George Washington in the United States, uh, Napoleon in France, uh, uh, Kosciuszko in Poland, Bolivar in, uh, in, in South America a little later. They're all people who, um, whose, whose immediate claim to fame, as it were, is that they are successful Warriors, and 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 that's one of the reasons why Toussaint is uh, such a successful revolutionary. Is that there are a lot of people who are fighting, uh, 
uh, fighting to abolish slavery and fighting to throw off the, the Spaniards and the British uh, from the island of Saint-Domingue in the 1790s. But none of them, uh, literally none of them, have the military genius that Toussaint has and which allows him to become this uh, celebrated uh, military hero. Uh, and, and one of the, I, I devote a whole chapter in the book to his military art and, and you can see that he's extraordinarily successful. Um, he doesn't always win because no general does, but he does have this very, um, very remarkable gift um, uh, in terms of uh, appreciating uh, 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 what needs to be done and, and also using um, the natural landscape of Haiti to his own advantage, which is, of course, something that uh, uh, soldiers and officers who come from Europe did not necessarily, would not necessarily have had. So one reason why I think he's very successful is to do with, with, with his military uh, uh, skills, um, which were, by the way, self-taught, right? I mean, we have no evidence that prior to 1791, Toussaint had any uh, military training at all. Indeed, according to the Code Noir, uh, which is the body of rules that regulates um, how slaves should be treated, you know, a slave wasn't even allowed to, to, to carry a weapon, right, a weapon of any kind, so let alone be trained in how to use weapons. So that doesn't come at all from his, from his time as a, as a, as a plantation uh, coachman. This is something that he learns um, on the job very quickly in the early 1790s. That's one of the many ways in which you appreciate that he was someone with exceptional talents, because very quickly, when he's placed in a situation where he needs to learn these military skills, he learns them, and he learns them faster and better than most of the people around him. So that's one reason. The other reason, I think, is political. Um, he's someone who realizes very early on that if the Black Revolution is going to succeed in Saint-Domingue, um, a number of preconditions have to be met. One is that the, that the, that the ex-slaves uh, have to be united. And so the theme of unity is one that he champions um, uh, constantly. Um, so the, the, the Black population is not um, politically united at all in the early to mid-1790s. They fight... They have a common enemy, of course, which is slavery and the plantation system, but they're divided into basically religious, uh, regional, and tribal groups. And one of the great achievements of Toussaint Louverture by 1796-1797 is that he has united all these different um, uh, 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 groups, military and, and, uh, uh, and, and uh, ethnic uh, groups uh, under his leadership. And uniting the black people is one part of his strategy. And the other part of his strategy is um, getting the different ethnic groups of Saint-Domingue. In other words, the blacks, uh, the whites, and uh, uh, the mixed-race people, getting all of them to work together. And one of the things that's striking about his own army and his own administration is that in, it includes people from from these different communities. And so his ideal of what a future Saint-Domingue should look like was that of, I mean, today we would say a multiracial republic. Um, and, and, you know, projecting 
much, much further uh, forward in time, the person that he reminds me of uh, a great deal is Nelson Mandela, right? He's someone who lived um, exactly like Mandela for most of his adult lifehood under a really barbaric system, which denied his humanity. Yet at the same time, uh, as he comes through as a revolutionary leader and starts to plan um, what life should be like um, un under a new order, He's extraordinarily uh, humane, uh, generous, and forgiving. And for him, uh, there was a place for the white planters in, in the new Saint-Domingue that he wanted to create, provided, of course, those white planters were willing to live with uh, a majority black population that, that enjoyed equal civil and political rights. So... Um, after 1793, when the French have agreed to abolish slavery, what was still needed to be done in the revolution for him? Well, in a sense, that was the, the precondition for um, the next step. Uh, I mean, two things needed to happen. Saint-Domingue is uh, a colony which is um, where uh, uh, foreign imperial presence is, uh, uh, is, is widespread. So... Um, uh, the Spaniards still occupied um, the eastern part uh, uh, of, of the island of Hispaniola. Um, you know, the, the, eastern, the eastern part, which today is the Dominican Republic, was in the late, um, late 18th and early 19th century under, under Spanish control. Um, and the British, who are um, very keen to, to preserve and extend their influence um, in the Caribbean, uh, and, and who have a, 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 an important base in Jamaica, the British launch an intervention um, uh, uh, in Saint-Domingue um, after the French revolutionaries abolish slavery. Because, of course, the British absolutely do not want um, uh, slavery to be abolished in their own colonies. And they think that the only uh, uh, effective way of preventing that is to actually um, overthrow the, the revolutionary order in Saint-Domingue. So from 1793-94 onwards, the British invade and occupy parts of uh, Saint-Domingue. They occupy um, uh, uh, Port-au-Prince. They occupy um, a number of southern, uh, southern ports. And Toussaint fi fights against them and basically expels the Brits. Um, they leave in 1798. So let's say liberating the territory is, is one of his first objectives after 1794, and he achieves that. Um, so the second objective is creating uh, in a kind of a constitutional order in which um, the, the civil and political rights of all the people of Saint-Domingue will be guaranteed. And as I was saying, um, you can't really view the history of Saint-Domingue or of Toussaint in isolation, because he's, he's always uh, very mindful of the situation in France. And from the mid-1790s onwards, Toussaint realizes that the pro-slavery the pro elements in, in the French Revolution are gaining ground again. France abolishes slavery um, nationally, as it were, in 1794. But of course, Abolishing it um, just by a kind of act of parliament doesn't mean that people are completely uh, 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 converted to the idea of um, the equality of all races. And in fact, the, the planter lobby in France becomes increasingly powerful in the second half of the 1790s. And those are a lot of the people 
who end up supporting Napoleon, supporting him uh, in his coup d'etat and supporting him in the early uh, early 1800s, pushing for the the restoration of slavery. And Toussaint is, is seeing all of this and hearing all of this. So what he what he realizes he needs to do in Saint-Domingue is to give a secure constitutional basis to um, the new political order. And this is what he proceeds to do uh, in his own, in the constitution that he enacts in 1801, which is um, a, a wonderful revolutionary document because one of the first uh, articles says that slavery is abolished forever. And, and he does that, you know, and, and a lot of people seem to me have, have, have deliberately misunderstood um, what he was trying to do, willfully misunderstood what he's trying to do there. Because uh, his critics um, say, oh, well, you know, he, he, he promulgated his own constitution, and that means he was trying to make Saint-Domingue independent. Absolutely not. You know, he didn't, he didn't really see any hope for Saint-Domingue outside a kind of strong connection with, with the French Revolution. However, he wanted to protect his own people from being re-enslaved because he knew that sooner or later, and this is what actually happened very quickly, in fact, in the early 1800s, the French would try and find ways of restoring slavery in their colonies. And Toussaint wanted to make sure that if that were to happen, it would not happen to his own people. So it's clear that Toussaint was a very talented, very powerful, successful leader. But are there any areas of his leadership that you would criticise? Yes, um, I think like like many revolutionary leaders, um, particularly many charismatic revolutionary leaders, um, he had a slight tendency to uh, believe only only if something was done by himself um, would it be done properly. Um, I mean, he believed that on the on the military field, and he was often right in that respect. Um, but he also came to hold that view. Um, from, from 1797 onwards, he becomes increasingly involved in the civil administration of the colony as well. Um, in fact, the Constitution of 1801 makes him governor uh, of the colony, uh, appoints him governor of the colony. So he's both a military leader and a civilian leader. And I think um, while he had a very clear set of objectives uh, as the civilian ruler, uh, I think this is the part of the French revolutionary tradition that he perhaps um, uh, set aside a bit too much. Um, He didn't consult enough. Um, He didn't create um, political institutions that were genuinely um, consulting the people. Um, uh, I mean, there are reasons why this happened. And and as I I explained a moment ago, for him, uh, these were not normal times because he he was absolutely convinced and events proved him right that sooner rather than later, the French would send a large fleet over to Saint-Domingue to re-enslave the population there. So he was was really dealing with a kind of extraordinary situation. And, And in an extraordinary situation, it's very difficult to be um, to behave in uh, 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 as one might in under normal political circumstances. But even when all of that is 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 said and done, I think uh, he could have done a bit more to um, create uh, a form of leadership that was a bit less individual and a bit more reliant on um, the talents and the abilities of 
um, uh, uh, some of the very remarkable people he was surrounded with, who indeed went on to become uh, the leaders of post-independence Haiti. So he had some really extraordinary people around him, and I think he didn't really use them uh, uh, as much. Um, so that's one possible criticism. The other area where people are critical of him and where I think he does have something to answer for is um, there's a there's a very bitter civil war that erupts in uh, in Saint Domingue in the late late eighteenth uh, uh, century around 1799-1800, and that's when he's challenged by uh, a mixed race uh, general called Andre Rigaud. Uh, the mixed race population of Saint Domingue was largely confined to one part of the colony, the, the southern uh, part, and so this becomes uh, really quite a bitter civil war. It's, it's called the War of the Knives, um, and it leads to widespread loss of lives on both sides. Um, and um, uh, for a while, um, it becomes really a racial war between um, the black population and, and their leaders represented by Toussaint and, and the mixed-race population, um, which is uh, uh, championed by André Rigaud. Um, and as as in all civil wars, um, um, there are atrocities committed on both sides, but atrocities certainly committed by by Toussaint Louverture's own troops. Um, not that he necessarily condoned what happened, but uh, he didn't perhaps do enough to uh, to rein rein his troops in. And one of the consequences of that was that. For um, quite a few decades, certainly in the in, in post-independence Haiti, Toussaint's reputation among the, the mixed-race uh, elites was actually a rather poor one because they they kind of held a grudge against him for what had happened during this um, during this uh, during the civil war. And what were, as far as we know, Toussaint's views on race and racial equality? Well, I think um, what's really interesting about him on that front is that he's not someone who, I mean, to, to use contemporary language, he's not really interested in identity politics. He's not someone who defines himself primarily uh, through his ethnicity. Um, he's someone who believes that ethnicity matters only uh, insofar as um, uh, it is needed to uh, underline the importance of equality. So he's a Republican. He's a classical Republican in that sense. Um, and, and I suppose ultimately, I mean, if it doesn't sound too paradoxical, um, his view was that race should not matter. Right? His view was that what he wanted to do was to build a political community in which people treated each other um, as human beings, um, as human beings who, who possessed certain basic rights, uh, and those rights had to be upheld for everybody. And, that's, uh, and, and so race only comes into the picture when those, when those rights uh, are being uh, infringed upon. And so, of course, they were. And, and that's why Toussaint spends all that time during the 1790s championing the rights of, black, uh, of his black brothers and sisters. But he's doing so not in order to create... Um, uh, uh, some kind of black hegemony. Um, his idea of what a good virtuous republic should look like was that was a multiracial one, right? As I mentioned earlier, so so blackness 
matters, um, but it matters um, as a Republican principle of equality. I think that's something really important. Um, and the other thing, uh, and you see it constantly in his writings, that he talks about when he's when he's referring to to his blackness or or or, or the color of his skin, is that he wanted to show that black people were just as good as uh, 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 any other group when it came to um, performing uh, either military or or or, or, or civilian uh, uh, duties. Um, uh, one of the interesting things about uh, his his military experience is that you see constantly him saying, by, by the fact that we're winning all these victories, uh, often against European troops, by the way, you know, when he's fighting the Spaniards and the British, you see him say, well, actually, you, you see uh, through these victories, uh, we're demonstrating that black people um, have exactly the same uh, 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 intellectual and uh, uh, physical qualities and, and virtues um, as other political groups. Uh, and, and there's one word that comes up very, very often uh, when he talks about race, and it's the word honor. Um, so he believes it's always important for people, uh, for people in general, but for black people in particular, to behave honorably. Um, and, a lot of the, and a lot of the reasons when, when he justifies why he uh, thinks it's important for um, uh, white people to be treated well uh, uh, in a kind of post-revolutionary political order is that he thinks that um, it's the honorable thing to do. Uh, and black people, in his view, have a very distinct uh, sense of honor. Um, so these are some of the ways in which he uses um, the language of blackness. But I think the, the main, the fundamental message is um, he's someone that didn't believe that blackness was something that should define um, uh, one's identity, uh, but it was something that, um, uh, uh, something that should afford protection uh, when people's rights were being infringed. And so he never actually lived to see the final outcome of the revolution in Haiti. So where does it go wrong for him? Why does he not see it out? Well, um, I guess the short answer is that he trusts the French too much because um, uh, he sees, um, I mean, he, he's proved right in the sense that the French um, do send a fleet to uh, invade and conquer Saint-Domingue and, and eliminate uh, the, rev the black revolutionary leaders entirely. I mean, we have the blueprint that Napoleon gave his, um, uh, the commander of the invading force. And it's a very, um, you know, racialized uh, 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 set of instructions, right? Very clearly, very explicitly, Napoleon ordered um, his commanders to, first of all, to make, to pretend that they wanted to, um, Make an alliance with the with with the black revolutionary leaders, but as soon as uh, 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 their confidence had been won, uh, he tells them that they should be captured and uh, and eliminated. Uh, and when when the French forces land um, in early eighteen o two, Toussaint is very suspicious and in fact launches a, 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 a military response against them. Um, and I suppose the, the unfortunate thing is that uh, after a few months of fighting, 
uh, it reaches a, a, a basic stalemate. Um, the French retain control of all the coastal areas because that's where they land um, their, their forces and, and they're in a position of relative strength. But Haiti is a very mountainous um, uh, 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 landscape and all the um, inner areas are controlled by Toussaint and by, uh, by, the, by, by the Black Revolutionaries. And Toussaint doesn't really see in the, in the short run a way in which uh, he can break through and, and achieve a military victory. He always believed, and, and, and he, he was proved right in this respect too, that exactly as, as had happened to the British, uh, that the French would be decimated by, um, by yellow fever. And eventually they would, um, they, they, they would be defeated, if you like, by the, by the natural resources of, of Saint-Domingue. But that is not something that happened uh, overnight. So Toussaint felt by the middle of 1802 that he needed to temporize and, and reach some kind of provisional agreement with the French, which is what he does. So he signs a ceasefire agreement. Um, and it's one that's very generous to, to his own, to his own uh, commanders and his own troops because they're all sort of integrated into uh, the French army. However, the French had a very clear objective of capturing him and exiling him to France, and that's what they do. Uh, and so he, he turns up at the fateful meeting just accompanied by uh, one or two people, and the French just uh, seize him and put him on a boat almost immediately. And uh, uh, he ends up in the Fort de Joux, where he eventually dies in 1803. So uh, by then, the situation has turned very much to the advantage of uh, the, the resistance. And, um, but Toussaint is not there to, to witness the final victory, which comes um, in, in early 1804. What I argue in the book is that um, Toussaint deserves credit um, for the emergence of the state of Haiti, because he's the one who, and who saw very clearly from the outset that the French did not have uh, benign intentions when it came to Saint-Domingue, that they wanted to re-enslave um, the, uh, the black population. And Toussaint realized that the only way in which the French would be defeated is if um, uh, 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 the black communities remained united. And that's eventually what, uh, uh, what allowed the Haitian revolution to succeed. And then after his death, how much of an inspiration was Toussaint to other revolutions and other slave rebellions? Well, I think it's, it's one of the kind of wonderful parts of the story, which I document um, in the final chapters. Um, Toussaint, I think becomes one of the, the iconic figures in the, in, in the whole Atlantic world. Um, wherever there are struggles against slavery, um, whether it's in um, the Caribbean, whether it's in South America, whether it's in the United States, uh, where um, anti-slavery and abolitionist movements um, start to develop um, very big momentum from the 1820s onwards, you see the figure of Toussaint Louverture is, is very much held in, in, in high esteem. And one of the very interesting ways in which um, I trace that is through the figure of Frederick Douglass, who is, of course, um, such a remarkable figure uh, among uh, African-American abolitionists. And I would say that for Frederick Douglass, the inspiration, the model, 
um, is to Saint Louverture. And uh, uh, Douglas is a very eloquent, uh, lyrical uh, writer and speech giver. And uh, I found some wonderful passages where he talks about um, the importance of Toussaint Louverture. Um, and Toussaint, later on in the in the later 19th and, and in the 20th century, uh, he, he retains this kind of uh, important uh, uh, position and influence among the um, in what you might call the anti-colonial movement, uh, and and you see it um, in uh, 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 in in Africa. You see it even as far as uh, anti-colonial movements in in Asia. Ho Chi Minh, for example, was compared to Toussaint Louverture by uh, by some of his uh, supporters in uh, in America. So. Um, uh, the Haitian Revolution and the figure of Toussaint Louverture re re retain this kind of iconic status all the way up to uh, the very recent, the very recent past. Um, uh, I end the book uh, with a, a description of how the French. Uh, I mean, it, it's almost kind of natural justice, having been the ones who captured him and uh, 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 held him in in jail. Uh, uh, until he died, the French in the late 20th century inaugurate a plaque in his honor in the Panthéon in Paris. So the Panthéon is the, is the place where all the French national heroes are buried. So Toussaint takes his place, as it were, uh, uh, in, among the uh, uh, iconic figures in the French uh, heroic tradition as well. Um. Okay, so dear, I think I've been through uh, all my questions I had. Is, is there anything else you think? I mean, I know it's a huge book, but is there anything else we really should have really should have asked you about? I think there's a kind of real issue of uh, about education, mm. which which I think um, might be worth saying something about. Which is that part of part of why Toussaint is important is because. Um, you know, there's there's still a lot, there's still a great deal of ignorance. Um, not just here, but also in France uh, and, and in countries that, that were imperial powers. There's still a lot of ignorance about um, the colonial past. And, and I think one of the reasons why one should know about the colonial past is not only because it was important way back then, but because it still casts a very big shadow on the way people are living their lives today. And so Toussaint Louverture, in that sense, and people like him are important because they also are expressing things that are still resonating with us as we, as we try and live our lives in the, in the 21st century. So um, that's the one other thing I wanted to add. And, and, and you know, um, the only way to, to kind of make uh, uh, that to make that situation better, to improve on it, is to make sure that people like Toussaint and, 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 and the colonial experience more generally uh, are studied more extensively at school. Um, because at the moment, as you know, the place of imperial and colonial history in schools is, is very limited. And so much more needs to be done in that respect. So I hope that in my, in my own modest way that this book will help kind of bring the focus back to um, to that very important and, and, and kind of formative moment in uh, in our modern history. That was Sotir Hazari Singh. Black Spartacus 
The Epic Life of Toussaint L'Ouverture, is out now, published by Alan Lay. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Our next episode will be released tomorrow. Tune in then for another lecture from our 2019 History Weekends. <laughs>